Welcome back to the Brave New Workforce, the podcast that is changing the way the world works. I'm your host, Larry Cornett. I'm joined by my co-host, Anna Kadina and Trip Odell. Today, we have a very exciting guest. Uh, his name's Christopher Lafayette. Trip, why don't you go ahead and let the, the audience know a little bit more about Chris? Well, I don't know that much more about Chris than you guys do. Um, I saw a post by Chris on LinkedIn uh, talking about a project that he has ramped up and something he's been talking about for a long time, which is how do you create on-ramps for people of color into high-earning careers in tech or sort of exposure to things like STEAM? And, and uh, I reached out to Chris, uh, signed up for the program where he is connecting people uh, who don't have that access that many people, especially those of us in tech, they don't have that access to, to be able to get into those careers, how do you help them find alternate ro- roadmaps? And I think some of that starts with mentoring, but then I think there's other some systemic things. And so Chris made the mistake of taking me up on an offer to have a quick conversation, which turned into an hour and a half. And it was a super interesting thing. Like we're just sort of both super nerds and into this, a lot of the same stuff. And he's done, he, he's, he's international, you know, TED, TEDx speaker, you know, he's done a lot of great keynotes. He's doing a lot of great work in this. And he is a, a, a futurist and, and sort of a, 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 a visionary around the areas of augmented reality. And he had a, he had a non-traditional path into this because, um, well, Chris, you tell your story. You, you, you had a dad that helped you, he was your leg into this world. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, first and foremost, I'd uh, like to thank the opportunity to speak with you all here with the Brave New Workforce. And uh, it's it's always good to see, uh, particularly in these times that we find ourselves in, that are uh, uh, voice platforms such as yourself prevailing uh, and finding a way to be able to get uh, a conversation through. And uh, that we don't find ourselves necessarily in traditional settings, uh, yet we're here taking advantage of technology that's been developing well over 10 to 20 years that was not as significant and relevant as it is today as it was six months ago. And so now we find ourselves in a situation where the technology that we have today has become more relevant than it's ever have been uh, before. And so it's good to know that as far as we've come uh, and as advanced as we've been, as I just spoke earlier on this today, to a delegation of people uh, and as and as well developed as we've come under the banner of technology and applied sciences and on the doorsteps of emergent technology as far as advanced we've come we have to go back because we left people behind when i was a kid i would come home and there was a man that was sitting at a table and he's sitting at a desk with a little light and he would be taking apart and putting together computers taking apart and putting together computers and I'd come home and I'd say, Dad, what's the internet? And he'd go about to tell me what the internet was. Then I'd come home, maybe at that same desk, same light on. And I'd say, Dad, what's the web? And he'd tell me everything that I wanted to know about the web, how it worked, how it flowed, how it functioned. Now, some years later, when I came to Silicon Valley and I came to Silicon Valley with black colored skin, I looked around cities and towns, and company campuses, and realized there's not a whole lot of people that looks like me compared to where I come from, from the East Bay in Oakland, California. But I was taught a lot by people that didn't look like me. And part of that caused me to look back after having now traveled across the country and spoken all around the valley and, and have 
having had the opportunity to speak around the world in front of an audience of hundreds, if not thousands, and realizing there's not a lot of people that look like me. And so it dawned on me that a few things. One, I was given the fundamentals of my understanding in technology years ago. Two, it was an incredible opportunity to have that, one that a lot of people didn't have where I come from. Three, it is possible to go across bridges to work with people and to understand and learn from people that don't come from where you come from. And so what occurred to me, that mindset in parallel with where we're at with emergent technology, looking at how all technologies abide within the eco-habitat, they begin to form together, coming together, pairing what we call the merge pairing, which subsequently leads us into the fundamental constructs of the smart city. It dawned on me that we have to go back because if we're going to extend reality, then we must bring reality with it. And now we're getting ready to find ourselves into 2D and 3D constructs and virtual construct environments and intelligent environments that derive natively from human intelligentsia. And these data sets that are accrued and that are brought together, aggregated, centralized in these platforms are going to be the way that we do business, buy and sell, trade and do the things we do and communicate. And if we don't have all stakeholders globally, all cultures, if you will, to come and contribute to that narrative, then we haven't done the best that we can do in terms of building our technology. And it ultimately leaves our eco-environments acceptable, especially when we've built our fields on a monoculture where we should have built on a polyculture. Now, when we talk about diversity, inclusion, belonging, equity, let's go further than that. Let's talk about eco-culture, eco-biotic diversity. Let's look at the ecosystem all around the valley in the Pacific Northwest and technology campuses across the country and around the world. We hear ecosystem, this and ecosystem, that. But what we put in our understanding is that an ecosystem is hardware and software, but ecosystems aren't hardware and software. Ecosystems are people. And so when we natively look at this cultural platform called eco-culture, what we have to realize is that culture and technology aren't separate, but culture is technology. Yeah, they're, they're, they're symbiotic, right? It's, there's, a, there's a symbiosis there where, where the technology influences culture and then the cultural need sort of pushes the technology. I mean, is that, is that what you're saying or is it? It's, that, it's exactly right. And that's why we're calling it biotic diversity. You know, if you go ask five different trip, if you go ask five different global DNI inclusionists in different companies and platforms, what's the definition of diversity? You're going to get five different definitions. So there's not a colloquial understanding on if you go ask leadership and executive, what's diversity? You know, it may come to many minds, affirmative action. But when we take it back to eco culture and looking at the, the biotic nature of it, of a living system, what we come to appreciate and find out is one thing. One, the more culture an ecosystem has, the whole system levels up. It doesn't detract. It doesn't take jobs. It doesn't take responsibility. It levels up the whole system. Two, in the product development cycle, it builds better products for distribution and development and more products that are more identifiable to more markets. Yeah, that's absolutely right? true. So yeah. when we look at it from this perspective, natively, if we take that way of thinking and we say, okay, there's been a lot of solutions in ERG groups. There's been a lot of solutions in HR. There's a lot of, and they've been brought to leadership. Now leadership governed with the fiduciary responsibility. And yes, we want more vulnerability and open-mindedness from our leadership and different companies and corporations. But I was always taught if you start off right, you end up right. You start off wrong, you end up wrong. The conversation has started off wrong. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's you're you're singing singing my tune here, right? Because you know, it's, I may have mentioned this a few times before, but like I grew up with dyslexia. Uh, you know, Anna, Anna and Larry are tired of hearing about dyslexia, but I have a child who's on the uh, on the spectrum, and uh, you know, a lot of the success that I've had in my career, I've attributed because of my brain thinking differently. Now, superficially, you know, I look like white privilege crossed with the Pillsbury Doughboy, right? Like it's, 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 it's a, but like in terms of the life experience or the point of view or that diversity of mindset, when you put me in the room with an engineer or you put me in the room with somebody who is a McKinsey and company sort of consultant, you're bringing that broad depth of expertise to the table. And both Larry and I come from design. You talk about that ecosystem and that biodiversity of people, it's really, we come from experience design. Experience design is about human experience, about user-centeredness, and making sure that you have a rich smattering of, of human experience across that. Um, it's, 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 a, it, it's, it's a really interesting, I've, I've never heard of it talked about in that way. You can take Trip Odell, and I can take a guy or gal from Stanford with the same color skin, those are two different stories, right, Trip? Yeah. Those are two different stories because yeah. we're talking about culture here. And if we're only identifying the need of a benefit gain for a better company culture based specifically on color, then we failed to do our part in identifying beneath the surface, one, what's more important, the color or the culture? Now, natively and geolocation-wise, we can track down culture based on colors, because that's the way that it's been put and that's the way it's formed in our society. And on gender as well, 92% of retail, female buying power in, in the United States, 64% of the buying power in California, Latinx. And I've been told that African-Americans or black people have been driving culture for decades and trends. I said, okay, okay, let's run with that. Now, all this data has been put in front of us for years now, and the numbers still remain the same. The churn has never been more greater than it is now. Attrition is still ensuing in big companies and ones you never heard of. So now what about going back at the fundamentals? And so to the story that I initially started off with, Anna, I'm here in Silicon Valley and I said, we have to go back. And I've got to take all these hidden heroes, these trips, these Annas, these Larrys. I got to take all of these people that I've learned from and those of color, these, these technical geniuses and non, and, and I got to take these hidden heroes and I got to go get these hidden geniuses and bridge them together by way of servant leadership. And guess what? This supersedes ideological differences. You can be a conservative in Sunnyvale. You can be a liberal in Mountain View, all in Silicon Valley. You can be a liberal in the dirty South. You can be a conservative in California. Doesn't matter. Servant leadership is servant leadership. And how do we put, now that we find ourselves in this COVID era where we're no longer subjected to location bias, I talked to a buddy yesterday in commercial real estate. He worked for one of the biggest commercial real estates in the industry. I hadn't realized, I knew the numbers were bad for commercial realty. I didn't realize just how dramatically bad. And look, as bad as it is today, based on their trajectories and pipelines, it is only going to get worse. That means we are in a virtual it's, it's a free. It's a free fall. It's it's it's, it's a complete changeover in terms of how the problem yeah. of work gets solved or how the work gets done. 
One of the things that you mentioned in the beginning was that you were in these rooms where nobody looked like you. And I can relate to that sentence because I came from uh, Singapore. Uh, neither of my parents were from Singapore. Uh, so naturally, we're kind of outsiders. And then I'm mixed race. So I'm Chinese, Lat Latina. Um, so in, even if I had a lot of Chinese people in the room, they didn't look like me. And even if I had a lot of Spanish people in the room, they didn't look like me. I never used that, though, as a reason why not to continue on to a further field. And I think what you said earlier about like, there could be two different trips or two different people of white skin color, and it would be two different stories. And I've always set, seen a lens of that. So I know for some people, I hear this dialogue, and maybe you can uh, help educate me. I hear people say, oh, I, nobody looked like me in this room. And therefore, I left or therefore, it wasn't for me. I didn't feel like I fit in. Why is that so important to have somebody to look like you? I mean, I, there's tons of people who are mixed race, but they don't look like me. And they don't re necessarily relate to me because I'm not even in the United States environment. I'm currently based in Costa Rica. So for me, how can we, I guess the better question is, how can we break into these rooms where none of where we don't look like the majority and still prevail and succeed and not have uh, that sort of identity hold us back from creating a better ecosystem. Um, one, thank you for sharing that, Anna. And I wouldn't have known that you come from those particular backgrounds unless you express that. And to that narrative, a lot of people, the reason that they leave, and there is such a churn rate because the people don't look like them, that's what they say, but they're saying this based on a false narrative. They don't have better words to use. What they're really saying is these people I don't identify with because they don't come from where I come from. What? But they're taught through media psychology and other platforms and even passed down. That person doesn't look like me. There's not enough people that look like that hasn't been something that's held me back. When I go into rooms and I have been in many rooms, I've been doing interviews and I go there and there's no one that looks like me. I embrace that. I think part of that is attributed is because I've always been in environments growing up. I was born on a base. I grew up in white neighborhoods. I also grew up in ghetto. I've had both. We had good times and we had difficult times. I have people that I call brothers that are white. I have people that I call brothers that are black, sisters as well. Just said one on social media. Thank you, sister. She's white. What does that mean? See, a lot of that has to do with eco-culture and taking it back. When, we're, when, we, when we teach diversity the way we do, we are teaching droves of people. I didn't intend to go this way, but Anna, that's a really apropos. Say, we're teaching droves of people. This is how we quantify and filter the discussion of diversity based on look. I don't agree with that. That's been something. So, Chris, I, I shared, like, I started my career. Well, I think one of the reasons that I really felt compelled to reach out to you is that early in my career, I started as a teacher um, in the Jesuit Volunteers on an Indian reservation in South Dakota. And I mean, you want to talk about a systemic sort of racist, explicitly racist system from the beginning, the way that you register for a tribe up to this day is like the blood quantum, the amount of native blood you have by inheritance sort of determines whether or not you're in that tribe or out of that tribe. And I think one of the things that was really frustrating as a teacher to see in the classroom was these students that had a foot in two worlds. They, they wanted to participate. I mean, they were listening. This is the early, the late nineties. They were, they were listening to 
Tupac and Biggie and like this stuff, you know, I'm this 25 year old teacher there, but they're, they've got this foot in the, in this popular culture world, this dominant culture world. And then they also have these traditional culture and they, and it was like the two couldn't intermix. You had to be in one or the other, but we were discovering these tools, these early video editing, these things where they were able to tell stories that reflected their ideas, their way of being there. And it made it accessible. It made the storytelling, the means of production accessible to them. And I think like that's somewhat of what, I mean, you're talking about many generationally different quality of technology today, but these are still the same kids that are playing Xbox and PlayStation and talking to Alexa and doing all of these things. And there is a, like, how do they get access to that? I think that's the problem where you're talking about going back is like, how do we address that system? What are, what are some of the ways you're thinking about that? Sure. We'll touch on that, but I want to add a caveat to, to Anna's uh, question as well. And then we'll set right right in that pathway uh, to your question, uh, uh, Trip, which is a good ideation uh, pivot. Uh, and uh, there's a flip side because those people that are leaving that look at things like that, they're also subjected to management and people that have the same process and thought process of color. And so now those people that feel like that, they are subjected to implicit and explicit bias although those people of color are also emanating implicit and explicit bias themselves. Yeah. So to break the mold on that, because you may say, well, Chris, how do you believe that? And, and you have this black program. Well, because I'm reaching out to a communities that statistic and to the data that is showing us in hundreds of thousands and millions that there is a subjected mass total of community that is underserved. And yeah. I want to get them up so that we can change mindset on how we quantify this. Else, well, it doesn't matter if we get everybody jobs, everyone careers and funded startups. If the mindset doesn't change, we've funded, we have funded a bad way of thinking. Yeah, I would just like to add that you have to start where people are at. That's the first thing. So even if you might not necessarily believe in this identity race card, you still have to start where people are at. So by you going into these communities and talking to them and try and bring them up and to expose them to more diverse thought, you're, you're starting where they're at and you're bringing them towards your level. You're bringing them towards a new future, a better future. And, I think, and mm -hmm. to the mentors as well, though. Mm -hmm. This is the bi-directional program. I just said that to host our mentors and I've been saying that as well. It's not one way. It's not, hey, let me get all these hidden heroes so we can help. Mm -hmm. and, and, and no, these hidden geniuses are going to help these hidden heroes as well for growth development. Mm -hmm. Emotional intelligence has to go both ways. And empathy is one of the key words we're looking for here, Anna, please. Mm -hmm. I think um, one of the common themes that you shared was that you've had a very diverse background growing up where you weren't, I guess, stuck in a particularly white community or a particularly black community. You uh, you've got to see a wide range. And so did that affect, I guess, your views on identity? Did it change? Because I think a lot of people have an identity to their race. And that's why it's been become a little bit difficult to incorporate more diverse thought into tech sectors or whatever, because again, like you said, we, we have people that don't look like us. Therefore this place is not for me. Why, how did you change that perspective where not necessarily it was about your race. It was, you had other 
I guess, backgrounds that you identified with where, where you were in a room where nobody looked like you and it didn't stop you from continuing on. Was that because of the diverse backgrounds? Was it because of something else like your your will and drive to to incorporate more diverse thought? Why keep going if, if there's nobody else that, you know, looks like us? I think the first thing I would say is grace and mercy and given uh, just that to understand, you know, situations that I'm walking into. Uh, I certainly wouldn't attribute it to my sheer willpower and, and, and that nature. I know that some people do, for, but for me, it's spiritual first. Uh, secondly, I will say that to the essence, I think, of your point is I did grow up in diverse backgrounds and situations with all different types of people. And, you know, whether that's from Southeast Asian or white, I mean, you know, very white and black and conservative and liberal environments. And I realized that, you know, there's people that I care very much to this day that I've grown up with uh, that support, let's say, President Trump. And, and I say this in no jest. We've had very firm discussions, but you can't disannul all of the history that you have based on that four-year decision. There's something more that speaks to that. And, I, and I'm touching on that is because where I come from and one of the places I come from, if you're black, there's a certain expectation of what you should like, what you should do, how you should talk, how you should be, what kind of shoes you wear on your feet. But I also know that's the case for people that are white. And there's a certain expectation of who they should be around, what they should do, what they shouldn't do. So that's all the way around the round robin situation. Now, me going into a room full of people that don't look like me, there's still a level of vulnerability that I find myself in. And there's sometimes a level of uncomfortability. And I go in there, but I go in there with the confidence that I've been given and the grace I've been given and go in there knowing that. It's more familiar to me than I believe from people where I come from, specifically when I talk about Oakland going into that room and they wouldn't find themselves anywhere near that situation. In fact, they would go into a room and be like, you're all racist because there's no one black here. That's not my understanding at all. In fact, one of the things that I've come to find out about this program in particular, Anna, from the stories I'm getting from our mentors is they have a desire to want to meet with people that don't come from where they come from. Mm-hmm. And you know, the biggest obstacle they face, they don't know how. Yeah. They don't, Larry, they don't know where to go. I was just, so, gonna, they're, just so they're saying, Chris, this program, we've got people from companies that you heard of and you use their products all the time. Engineers and developers. I didn't see this happening, Trip. I didn't see this coming about. I'm telling you, I didn't, I didn't expect to see people coming from Raytheon and coming from uh, Amazon and coming from Google and coming from Facebook. And I didn't see that coming. I thought I'd get a few, maybe a few, but in the numbers that we're seeing, I didn't expect that, Anna. And so when we find ourselves subjected to bias based on what we've been trained and taught, it's really hard to, to build in that type of ground because it's hard, it's thick. And I don't want to, it's hard to plant some seeds in there. But to your point, Anna, you got to start from where you get them. But when you, when we get them, you know, the big part of what we have to do is to have conversations. And so Trip, that's one of the reasons why we're starting off with our speaker series. And then we segue into our educational courses, because we want to have a conversation. We want you to hear from them, but it's okay. It's okay to hear from people that don't look like you. It's okay to work with people and to build with people that don't look like you, especially here in the United States, because we're a nation of immigrants. 
but we've been so siloed through politics yeah. uh, and through hate. Let's just keep it real through hate and ignorance that we haven't wanted to cross the lines. And there are some of the, some of us that had the pleasure that we yeah. go on the other side of the railroad tracks, if you will. But at nighttime I've come back there, but I know what it looks like on that other side. And how do you, um, remove that bias. I know you said we are siloed into this and let's say we have some biases. Uh, I know self-awareness is probably the first one, but let's just say I have a, I have some biases. How do I get out of that box so that I can continue forward and include more people without having stigma or whatever might be? I don't consider myself a particularly Right, like I don't think of race uh, every le- left and right because everybody looks different than me, so it doesn't really matter to me what you are or what you're not. I just take it at face value. But I'm sure I have biases that I could conquer. What, what's the first step to to getting out of this this silo? Well, I was just going to say I've I've got some experience with this because I I grew up in the Midwest in Nebraska. It's like everybody I grew up with was white, 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 white. My small farm town. And then I went to college and I'm finally exposed to people that don't look like me. And I'm making friends with people that don't look like me, which is an amazing experience. And I'll come back to this later. I'm a little worried about college kind of going remote and people not being part of that experience because I think it changed me forever. And then I moved to the Bay Area where there's tons of people that aren't like me and we're working side by side. And so my community completely changed. My working community changed. There were many times when I was working in Bay Area, I, was, I went to China for a while, worked there, I worked in India. Many times I was the only white person in the room, which was new for me. It was amazing. And before I knew it, I didn't realize how much it changed me because I lived in California almost for 30 years now. And then at one time I went back to the Midwest and I was, I was at this comedy club and I was feeling weird. I was feeling really weird. I was feeling really uncomfortable and I was trying to figure out what was going on. And I looked around, I said, oh, everybody in this room is white. And I felt weird. It made me uncomfortable. I was like, it had been the first time in 20 some years I'd been in an environment where everybody was white again and it made me uncomfortable. And I was like, wow, I didn't realize how much I've changed and how much has changed me in that whole thing. You you can't go back home. And it kind of struck me as like, I'm not the person I was 30 years ago. And a lot of it was just intense exposure with coworkers and colleagues 12 hours a day, you know, five days a week working side by side, it, it completely changed me. You know, one of the things that you know, I mentioned earlier from my volunteer time being going into this culture where they still very much remember like taking down Custer. They were like, yeah, we did that. Uh, and it, it's still very visceral and real. And being the guy, being a white guy walking into the store, you go to the gas station, you go in to get a soda and everybody stops. The whole room stops and looks at you and watch, what's he doing? Right. And, uh, you know, everywhere you go, like people are watching you, like, what's he up to? Um, and then leaving the reservation and driving into the white rancher communities outside the reservation and getting stopped by the cops because I had Pine Ridge plates on my car mm. and they, and they would, they would walk up and they would look at my, they would look at the license or the, the, the plates and then they'd look in the car and then they look in the, they'd be, the cops would be very confused that I wasn't a locator dude, uh, or going to basketball games, like being able to actually see it up close and personal and people that I know and I care about and experience that. I don't think that's a thing that a lot of people fully appreciate. And I think like one of the things that changed my perspective in that is I loved, you said this earlier about underserved communities, and then you kind of took it back to service leadership. 
is giving folks it's it's an exchange and that you're giving folks the opportunity to be of service to serve right to 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 lead in and 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 in response and i think that's the challenge that a lot of your i mean i feel it's a bit of virtue signaling from these big corporations that you know have these big dni events but they're going to determine what's the right way to bring people in as opposed to actually talking to people about like well, what's your life like? How do I, how do we make this easier? You seem like a really smart, driven person, but there's some gaps. Like, how do we, how do we, what can we make a trade off on, or what can we help you build up to? Um, no, we're not going to wait for you to have to go spend two hundred thousand dollars to go through college, right? Or to put all that on the line, and maybe we'll hire you then. Like, like trying to get them to work backwards in the Amazon parlance, like from where people are at. To what's the outcome you want down the line? How do you actually inject real diversity, real biodiversity into that ecosystem that is really sort of an orchid in a hothouse right now? Part of it is that, and to Anna's point, and to yours as well, and Larry, that's a powerful story. Part of that is not having to feel like, Anna, if we took the pursuit of attempting to change and to eradicate bias, I think we'd be on that quest ad infinitum uh, in perpetuity. No, bias does have a survival mechanism uh, to it. So eradicating all of bias is is er uh, not realistic. But I feel like we are self-aware enough to know that there's certain things that are holding us back. And how do we break out of that? I think part of it, each person has to search their own heart and mind to deal with that natively. That's number one. Number two, we want to teach and train our mentee students to identify bias, to mitigate and don't let that be an obstacle towards your scale. That's to reprogram one's mind to be able to identify and see, oh, this is what I was taught. This is what this looks like. Let me take a very soft skill approach and let me go around this thing in the road because I can't conquer it. And if I try to go head face with it, it's going to get bigger, much bigger than maybe what I want to deal with. Let me go around that and continue my success upward or my track upward and forward. Now, Larry touched on going back home and, you know, and the thing that there's two things that jumped out of my mind, and this may be a, not the best two examples, but forgive me anyway for sharing it. Dances with Wolves. Here's Kevin Costner, a yeah. soldier, goes out, leaves that environment, goes out into the Midwest, get exposes to a native tribe, identifies with, with culture that's more freeing, and open that it's ever that anything he's ever known and he's not looking back. That's number one. I'm going somewhere with this. Number two, you said you're from Nebraska. First thing that comes to my mind when I hear Nebraska, my, one of my, my favorite Bruce Springsteen track album, Nebraska. Right. <laughs> it's a wonderful album. Now think about this for a second. If even some black friends I know and people that I know from the past knew that I listened to Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> Nebraska, I'm a sellout. <laughs> what's wrong with you? Right. I was, I was trying to date somebody not too long ago. I said, I really love Bruce Springsteen and I got all kinds of looks. <laughs> and I was like, it's one of the greatest albums that are ever made. What's my point? When you're able to be free of that and subjected to what people think of you for making a move towards being with other people, mm -hmm. there's a liberty with that. There's oh. a liberty with that. And so what we do is we take this program and we take people that who you probably wouldn't meet on your average given weekend. We bring them in and say, hey, we're going to pair you with people that you probably don't live around. 
Mm-hmm. And we're going to have you guys have conversations, structured conversations virtually, right? No one has to get in the car and fill up the tank and charge up the EV electric battery. We don't have to do that. We can have it virtually just get on as we all that sit. We can have a conversation and some dialogue and we can learn and we can build. And guess what that does? There's not a handout that's involved with that. What it's doing is really having our mentors help point our mentees in the right direction towards mm-hmm. earned opportunities. This program is about earned opportunities. We don't want handouts. In fact, I don't want a handout from Silicon Valley. I'm extending a hand to help it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Give us earned opportunities to get to and through the door on the career path, leave the door open. And when we get folks in there, now that's when the relationship truly begins. Trip and I were touching on a lot of this, what happens. And I'm not a corporate guy. I haven't spent the kind of time that he has in the corporate vestige. That's not the world I come from. I come from an entrepreneurial track. And we do have that available for our mentees and our mentors come from that background as well. Some are very successful. But get them to and through the door. And then when the door is open, leave it open. And then still have the relationship and develop that through postmodern apprenticeship. Don't leave them abandoned. Let them know that you can come to us for guidance. You can come to us for leveling up. You can come with us when you get a management opportunity. You can come to us, work with us, and we'll help you every step of the way. Companies and corporations and our sponsors that we have, they love that. They love the idea that there's post-modern apprenticeship involved, right? And so when we look on the entrepreneur track, it's ultimately it comes down to classes, training, hackathons, lab to market, lab to funding, beginning these platforms funded. Now, let's look at the global economy. Um, There is no other country in the world that's more diverse in culture than the United States. If we don't embrace our differences in our culture on a global competition level, we have a threat on our hands because countries are finding a way across the seas to get together. No matter the class that they find themselves in through classism, they are finding a way to be able to get together and get together and to be able to build fantastic products that are coming down the pipeline with emergent technical growth. If we don't do this, we will be outbid, our talent will be superseded, and on a global competition level for technology development, we will find ourselves in a decline. How do we know this? It happened in the 90s. How long does Sony carry our lunch or have Mm -hmm. our lunch? Apple wasn't as relevant as as we like to think it. That wasn't a thing. Right. So there you go. Now, I think you touched on something that that we've been talking about, the the whole apprenticeship model, which, you know, I used to do blue collar work and it's a much more common thing there where you get apprenticed with somebody that has a lot more experience and they teach you. Here's what you do. Here's how you avoid mistakes. Here's how to avoid cutting your finger off. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's important. That stuff's not taught in a book. Right. And there aren't. Right. There aren't places you can go and, and kind of learn about that. So it's super useful. And we've been doing that with, uh, we come to Brave New Apprentices here for the podcast, where it's a couple of college kids that get a chance to work with us side by side, creating this podcast and scheduling and and talking with people. Yeah. And they're, they get like, they're working 40 hours a week. They're yeah. working on real work, like all the videos that we've put out to promote. Brian was working with you uh, to get you scheduled and he's, he's drafting up our scripts and Anna Michelle is doing, she's a film major. She's doing a lot of the videos and building out professional, they're learning how social media works. They're building it, like how to do campaigns, how these brand integration works. They're, they're, they're learning how to, how to tailor a message and they're having something professional. And one of the things we've committed to them is that 
okay, so you all are sophomores. Um, you have free career coaching and counseling mm-hmm. until you graduate. We will get you set up for when you graduate, you will be head and shoulders about, you know, everything for how do you get your LinkedIn squared away? This is what your resume should be. This is for your junior summer. That's the important internship. That's the one you really want to start working for in October. Like those sorts of things where you're giving them that guidance because we've been on the inside and hired those juniors, rising seniors in. Um, And so it's, but there's a, there's a, how do we bring that further down for kids that are coming out of high school and have an interest and they have an aptitude, but they don't have the skill set or the experience. How do you give them real hands-on opportunity? It's not just learning out of a book. So to that point, and that brings us to even towards the sunset of this conversation that we're having, that segues perfectly into what the program is. The Black Technology Mentorship Program is three things. One, we're a premium mentor-mentee program that's a technical program. Two, we're an educational, reimagined education program and platform. But it's a mentor-mentee program first, educational platform second, and third is the last mile fulfillment. And the last mile fulfillment speaks to just that. The biggest obstacle that companies and corporations have faced in giving and working in such mentor-mentee programs and STEM programs is that they don't see an ROI. They don't see, they give to these camps, they give to these platforms, but none of those people come and work for them eventually. So what we're doing is we're actually taking our K through 12 and mainly, and then our 20 to 30 some year olds, which unbeknownst to us is one of the biggest brackets that we have in our program. And what we're doing is we're giving them mentor menteeship. We're teaching them the necessary skills that they need. And the curriculum, a lot of the curriculum is developed by our sponsoring partners. And so they create the fulfillment development and they set the bar and they, they create what they want our cohorts to learn and teach that'll be sufficient enough to get them an earned opportunity of an interview and eventually get a job. And they love supplying that. And that's last mile fulfillment. We're not asking you to donate to something that you do not get anything back. In fact, what you're gonna get is a person that has a better fundamental understanding of your company the day that they take that interview and we're confident that they're going to get in there and they're going to conquer and be a really strong asset for your product delivery teams. So that's what our last mile fulfillment is. And you're not paying like more than a hundred thousand dollars for that entry level talent. Like that's the thing that, you know, you can go to MIT and you're useless on day one, right? It's going to take you, it takes you a year to learn how to be semi-professional, right? That's right. That's right. And we're giving you that and we're including postmodern apprenticeship where it's just us making sure that we stay with them when they get in, hold them accountable and have an outlet for them to be able to find out a better way on how to perform in a company based environment, especially when it comes to what Anna brought up is you're looking around and there may not be anyone that looks like you. Well, we're going to help you to fit in that environment. And everyone that may not look like you, they may want to be you when everything is said and done and really reflect your acumen that you bring to the table. And that may be inspiring for you to be the outlier leader to really help drive that initiative and platform. And it's just a win-win situation all the way around. And so mm-hmm. that's what we get when we start to bring and introduce culture of the last mile fulfillment. We want to create jobs and funded startups. And that's what this program is about. It is not a feel-good initiative. It is a revenue driver, but it's even more than that. It's, 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 re, it's reimagining how we go about 
working the mentor-mentee relationship for the greater gain of all invested stakeholders. Yeah. So Chris, where, where can people find out more about the program? Sure. ChristopherLafayette.com. You go on there and take a look. You have that on there. I'd leveraged it with my brand. I didn't want to put it out there on its own and expected to grow since I had the brand to be able to leverage out there. I decided to use it and use it in a good way and to put it out there and to put the program hosting on there. And then when I think we could take the training wheels off and kick it out and go on two tires, then we'll have its own database and platform built out and centralize all of our sessions and mentee mentors right in one place. And you'll be able to go there and most likely we'll have a domain name available for now, but and for then, but you can go to ChristopherLafayette.com and you can get in there and you can sign up as a mentor and mentee. And I certainly hope that there's folks in your audience that would consider answering the call and, and having some type of servant service leadership and really want to step up and, and look, and look, I'll have, to, I have to say this, the commitment is light one hour a year, hmm. 45 minutes under the sound of a professional's voice to thousands of our mentees sitting on a conference and a 15 minute Q and a at the end, it may seem minuscule, to the person that's speaking, but to those thousands and hundreds in attendance, you may say something that could completely alter their trajectory for a better way to go. That's amazing. Christopher, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, this is a, a really great conversation. It's a conversation we've been looking forward to for weeks. Again, we'll add the URLs and social media posts when this comes out, but also in the show notes, yeah, uh, you can find us at thebraveworkforce.com or bravenewcompanies.com. You can also email me at Anna at thebraveworkforce.com. Chris, thank you so much again for coming on. Yeah, thank you, man. And Thank uh, you, Anna. Thank you, Larry. And thank you, Trev, for your invitation. I really appreciate that. And yeah, I certainly really yeah. It's been edifying and, and I look forward to uh, rewatching it again and sharing it out to my audience and hopefully uh, they'll gain something from uh, the conversation we're so a uh, 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 benefit to have. And, 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 and as always, keep safe in these very powerful times and I hope the very best for all of you and your families. Uh, you stole my lines, uh, putting one foot in front of the other. Better danger ahead. <laughs>